0: I'm excited to welcome Head of Coaching and Professional Workforce for Sport England and host of the Talent Equation Podcast, Stuart Armstrong, to the Basketball Podcast. Stuart has worked in sports development for the past 20 years. Stuart has held positions in performance and talent development at England Golf, UK Coaching, and the Rugby Football Union that have all focused on creating optimal development environments for young people to thrive and reach their potential. Stuart is currently the Head of Coaching and Professional Workforce at Sport England. He has been responsible for writing and publishing two national strategy documents, Coaching in an Active Nation, The Coaching Plan for England, and Working in an Active Nation, The Professional Workforce Strategy for England. Stuart is a highly regarded public speaker, having delivered keynote presentations across the globe for a range of organizations, both in and out of sport. He's an expert facilitator who leads workshops for organizations, striving to support people to be the best they can be. Stuart also owns the website www.thetalentequation.co.uk and is host of the five-star rated podcast, The Talent Equation, which is dedicated to providing advice, guidance, and support to people at the cutting edge of coaching and performance development. Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Grace, how are you doing? I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm excited to talk to you. I was kind of mentioning off-air. I was kind of warming up my audience over the last uh, 200-plus episodes for you. And uh, <laughs> what a treat. Uh, you, Your podcast and your podcast guests just do an excellent job of simplifying our understanding of better coaching practices. So let's start with this. What are the dangers or potential pitfalls of using drills in coaching?
1: Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of potential pitfalls. Um, I suppose this good starting point would be to, for me to define what I mean by a drill. So dr- the, a drill has become kind of a ubiquitous term that's now used to describe loads of different exercise forms um and i think it's sort of just become like it certainly in the us um from like all the conversations i've had and time i've spent there you know people just talk about a drill they talk about a drill right but actually sometimes it's actually what they've discussed created as a drill is is not really what i would call a drill it's more of a unopposed exercise or sometimes an opposed exercise, you know, and then you have like a scrimmage, which I call a game. Um, and there's like various different forms. So what I have created is like a taxonomy, if you like, of different kind of exercise forms so that we know what we're talking about. And there's lots of different types. So for drill drill for me is kind of an extreme end, which is, you know, the, the kind of stuff you would see that was, well, firstly, it's unopposed. So, um, secondly. The movement is pretty prescribed. So either what you do, uh, like, you know, for example, how you dribble or or where you dribble is defined, right? Or where you pass or whatever it is, it's predefined. So you, there's not really any uh, thinking that goes into it. It's just a question of just repeating a particular movement over and over again. Um, uh, and then the, another feature of a drill is um, it, it's usually uh, got cues involved as well, so there's usually people waiting their turn because uh, there's a particular like space that you've got to operate within. Therefore, you can't include everybody, so people are waiting for their go. If you like, so uh, that's the sort of anatomy, if you like, of a drill for me. It's that very, you know, it, it the drill, uh, the concept of a drill comes from the military. It comes from the idea that we want, you know, rows of people performing actions perfectly in choreography and in unison with one another. Um, which, you know, comes from the sort of military parade ground, um, and was originally designed to create a form, a sense of uniformity, but also obedience amongst, amongst, uh, amongst um, the military workforce, if you like. Um, and those concepts then came and were transferred into sports because the idea was we wanted, you know, subservient athletes that basically follow the plan to the letter, you know, and we develop a sort of a military campaign style. so. The idea behind a drill, where where do the pitfalls come from? Well, the pitfalls, first and foremost is if you're going to predefine the movement and you're going to predefine how the movement is done, where the movement is done, the timing of the movement, and it's going to be done in a situation where there's nobody else involved who can kind of get in the way, well, don't be surprised if the moment you then have a situation where, you do, the the, the way you move it is not predefined because there's other people trying to stop you or there's teammates asking for you to move it in a certain way. Um, Or you have to make a decision about where to go, whatever it is, you know, or, and you have to do that whilst you're under the pressure of opponents doing all sorts of crazy things to try and stop you. Don't be surprised as a coach, if whatever it was that you were doing in your drill Doesn't really work in that context because it's a very, you've done something very different. You've done something that's very, very removed and isolated. So don't expect transferability, particularly into game. If you've done that, So that's the number one. The second one is, um, don't expect your athletes to be particularly creative. Uh, and to be good problem solvers, sort of on you know in the in a situation. Don't expect them to be able to, expect them to look for you for answers all the time. Because if you're the one who prescribes the movements, then you are going to be somebody. They're going to look to you to say, well, what do I do now if it doesn't work? Because they haven't experienced it in the context. They've only experienced it in the isolated context. Therefore, you're asking them to do something else, and they're going to look at you and say, well, that didn't work. What do we do now? And also, don't expect them. To um, have to, to expect them to start to lose faith in you over a period of time because what they're doing in training isn't working in games and they don't feel like it's working and they're going to look to you for answers and you may or may not be able to give them the answers. So that's the other one. Then the, then the third one is um, if so, you, you're going to have it stifled to the creativity. You've had a situation where you've got individuals that it's not trans- the, 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 the activity is not transferring. And the final one is don't expect your athletes to be particularly motivated um, and to have a joy of what they're doing because what they'll be doing will be fairly repetitive. And because it's so removed from context, it will seem a little mindless. And therefore, as a result of that, you'll find that they become demotivated quite quickly and you may also experience some behaviours that are, you know, kind of like, you know, that probably stem from boredom perhaps or something like, you know, which you might find you need to manage. So you're going to have a situation of demotivated and then some demotivated athletes who are maybe acting up, so to speak, and it's really a product of the activity form that we've provided for them more than anything else. Oh blimey! That was a that was a that was a roller coaster start.
0: That's basically <laughs> it. That's that's it. I mean, but but, but it, I mean, I just I know there's like there's different audiences. You have you probably have a little bit more open minded audience. I have a lot of basketball coaches that are all in between different levels of understanding these things. So you saying those things is so important for them to hear and to understand. And also to understand that this isn't you and i making this up this is all based on evidence-based research isn't it
1: oh 100 yeah there's a lot there's an awful lot of re- well there's there's you have to it's funny actually because you have to look at this like you almost like start to pick various bits of uh research and you sort of amalgamate it together and you can start to. so for example if you talk about the motivation you know some of the research around self-determination theory Really points to this. Some of the research that Amanda Visek did around fun integration theory and what young people derive for fun from sport, and you know, and that starts to lead you in this direction as well. But if you then start to look into the skill acquisition research for the stuff around things like creativity and skill, that's telling us now pretty unequivocally. I mean, don't get me wrong; there are bodies of research that talk about this, right? But what you're seeing is is that there is a sort of standardized body of research that define that has where where the concept of the isolated drill has emerged from. But there's another body of psychological research that's basically saying that context really matters and skill, skill is an emergent thing that comes from the environment and the context. And it's about solving problems. So we used to think it was about developing technique which we could apply in context. That's the old, that's what we call the linear tradition. There's this alternative view now, or this alternative perception with a really strong body of evidence that's basically saying that skill c- can be developed and is developed the other way around. So we present them with a context and a problem to solve. The athletes then try and solve the problem, and what emerges from the problem-solving process are techniques. Uh, we call them skills because they were because they're devised in the context, c- remembering, of course, that a skill is a technique applied in context so we used to go technique to context now now we can go context technique working the other way around
0: i love this Uh, at the forefront you mentioned problem solving and at Mm -hmm. the forefront of the drill from a coach's perspective is essentially there's one solution when you do a drill and we know that in these open invasion environments that there's not one solution and how do we get coaches past this hang up on saying there's only one way to do this it could be a defensive closeout it could be the way you shoot i mean the no perfect technique philosophy all these different things come into play and we've got to get our coaches minds beyond this concept
1: well i think when people say one way i think often what they mean is like there's there's a there's a kind of an optimal way and the reason we believe that there is an optimal way is because you know over the years people have tended to act in certain ways and then they've become conventions and so what we now think we need to do is to teach people those conventions, and then that'll give them almost like the shortcut to being proficient. Now, some of the reason I think a lot of people do that is because we're in a rush to get kids competing. Um, and don't get me wrong, I don't have any problem with that uh, at all, you know, because playing is absolutely part of this. So, playing games, but of course, playing and competing are slightly different. But we always don't get me wrong, we're always competing. But when we start to to sort of stop, get more formal competition. So we're playing in leagues and cups and all those sorts of things. Then we feel the pressure as coaches to have people to be more proficient with the techniques quicker so that they can then be more proficient in the games. And it sort of looks a little bit better. But the problem is with that is, is it doesn't allow any space and time for individuals to sort of understand who they are because like every child, every, not even child, every adult, but every child is different. We've got different limb lengths we've got different you know kind of body lengths we've got different shapes and sizes and heights and this that and the other and our technical capabilities are defined by our physical capabilities our action capacities they call it and what we so and as a child grows and they change their action capacities change and so their abilities change and they need to be able to adapt to those changes as they move forward the real danger with prescribing these 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 movement solutions is that you define a movement solution for an individual because you believe it to be optimal, and then very quickly it becomes suboptimal. Why? Because of a change in growth. Or you do something else, You you, you pr- 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 because like a young person say is tall, you put them in a particular position and give them a set of skills that associate with that position and their relative height. They don't grow anymore, everybody else grows, and all of a sudden those skills are pretty redundant because they need to play in a different position. So there's loads of pitfalls about these sort of prescribed ideas around movements and positions and all those sorts of things. But the the other bit that's a real issue is um, when you, so even if these ideas, even if these um, movements, movement capabilities are optimal, right, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way it can be done. Because what you find about the greatest individuals is they redefine the game. They start to do things that you haven't necessarily seen somebody, you haven't seen anybody else do, and then they become the kind of, you know, the move that everybody gets taught. Right? So there's this weird thing about how we feel like we've got to teach these techniques because this is what we've seen others do, and now everybody wants to learn those sorts of things. The reality, though, is that young people will probably find themselves towards those action capabilities or those movement capabilities because they, they naturally become the way you solve the problem. Now, does that mean we never refine those? Of course we do, because you might be somewhere near it, but you just want to make it a little bit better here and there, right? But, and you might find that, you know, people develop a movement capability that is actually suboptimal. And in which case you go, okay, well, that's fine. Let's explore something else. And then you can start to decide whether you want this or you want that or want the other. But it's, that's a very different mindset from saying to somebody, it's almost like saying to somebody, I'm going to give you this key. Now, you don't know which lock it's going to open and you don't even know if there's a lock there. But one day there will be a perfect moment in time where you need to insert this key into this lock and everything will be perfect. Now, if that does happen, that'll be brilliant, but it's such a redundant idea. Because, like, you know, like, when's that ever going to happen in that kind of perfect scenario for somebody? So, what you want them to do really is to sort of come across this idea and go, "Wow, yeah, look what I did! Look what I did, coach." It's such a, it's a very different way of thinking about learning. Like, is learning something where you're putting something into somebody and then they're going to then just basically replicate it, or do you see learning that way, or do you see learning as? enabling an individual to start to solve problems for themselves and find movement solutions, which are going to be lifelong. They're going to stay with them forever. It's a very powerful learning method. It's slower, but it's very powerful. And it just depends how you look at learning and how you look at a theory of learning. And personally, I'm very aligned to the kind of self-directed one. Why? Because I've seen kids come up with stuff that I never could have taught them in a million years, and I could have possibly even curtailed them from getting those ideas because I was too busy teaching them the right way or how I thought it was the
0: right way anyway. So so we know I, I'm aligned with you, but mm-hmm. uh, let, let's approach it from a, a devil's advocate perspective because I do know that the dominant style for basketball coaches is still largely drill-based and it's mm-hmm. changing I think over time here, but it's still largely drill-based. So the question is, what do we do instead? What are some of the best alternatives to doing drills as you describe them
1: that, that's um that's a kind of big question as well a good one <laughs> really good one well so my, my view is i'm um uh i don't know if you've come have you come across the korean word koan yes yeah so it, 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 i believe it means puzzle so i talk about i talk about i've got a sign behind me saying ditch those drills not very good for a podcast but there is a sign behind me called ditch those grills um but also i, a I talk about that
0: says no three man weave and an axe through it
1: <laughs> i like that i want one of those please <laughs>
0: you'll get it, you'll get it. <laughs>
1: um i um so I, uh, I but i also have a phrase which is um not cones and wh- what i mean by that is rather than using cones to just to prescribe where somebody goes but cones are fine to use as a space, but to just create spaces, but not to define where you move to. So the idea of people would drill to this cone, to that cone, to the other cone, right? Your pre-described idea. But what you want to do is create puzzles instead. So a drill, as I said earlier on, is defining the movement one way or another. It's defined, you're going to do this. You're going to, so it's it's like a form of choreography. If you do it, you can do drills with others. There's more variability if you're doing it with others. So therefore it's less of a drill, but it's still closer to the drill space, right? So if you want to create a puzzle, you need to have some form of challenge point in there. Now, ideally, ideally that challenge point is somebody else, somebody else trying to stop you an opponent. The kind of people we would face up to. Um, but it's not always feasible to do that. So you want maybe other kind of challenge points. So you might create a challenge point through constrained space or you might create a challenge point through a difficult challenge or you might create create a challenge point through time pressure or something along those lines just to sort of you know kind of create some of the elements some of the game elements that you might come up against. Ideally wherever possible though, you want an opponent. So my view is I'm generally speaking looking to try and find games that we can play whereby I can design a game and I use this term designer games quite a lot. Where I can create a game that has got enough opportunities for an individual to try different things out, uh, but there's enough um, reality. So the, 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 the opponent is trying to stop them. Now, sometimes I'll constrain the opponent because if they're too aggressive, the person is never going to get a chance to try anything out. So we might put some rules on the opponent as to what they can do. So for example, they might have to defend with no hands or they might have to defend with, um, you know, that they can only walk or they can, you know, move in a certain way, or they're limited, but in their movement with what they can do, or they can only defend with one hand or a load anything, anything you want to put in there. But wherever possible, there is an opponent with a task and. And then the other individual, then the, the other person, and it could be opponents, you know, it could be 2v2 or 3v3 or whatever it is, and the other opponents have their own task. And we're going to explore the different movement solutions within, within the definition of that task. And if you design it cleverly enough, what you start to see is like the movements that you probably would have tried to teach from the outset just start to emerge really powerfully. And sometimes they emerge in a way. That you didn't quite expect and it allows you then to go on to another stage of exploration
0: with that individual and that's really quite exciting it's quite exciting and uh, i kind of give the analogy to coaches that if i create an environment for players to be motivated they will be motivated Mm -hmm. if i create an environment for the proper we will define as skills or decisions or tactics and techniques that you want to emerge to emerge then they will emerge and that's why you emphasize this design concept, which is obviously a big part of it. Uh, another part of this is how do I, as a coach, is ensure of this? How do I know they've learned? Because my perception is when they do the drill as you've defined it, they're repeating something over and over again. My perception is they've learned it. But of course, we know that learning and application in the game environment, as you call it, transfer are different things. So for a coach, is ensure. How do they know they learned it in this design approach that you've talked about? And then if they're kind of diving deeper, how do they know it works? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that when you do a drill and you see them
1: learn it, so to speak, they haven't learned what you think they've learned. They've learned something false. So they've done something false that's got no fidelity with the game. And so they've learned that movement, they're gonna to have to relearn it when they come into the game. Cause sure as eggs is eggs, once you've got all the other variables going on there, opponents, teammates, pressure, da da da, it's different. You're gonna to have to do something different than the thing you learned. So realistically, what you've done in that kind of drilling moment was really not that was a bit of a waste of time. Um and actually, I don't know a coach in the world that's ever, ever said to me, you know what, I always feel like I've got too much time. I, I, I you know, could, you know, they never say that they say I never have enough. Right. So if you don't want to be doing things that aren't going to be giving you maximum time, uh, maximum return. So the question is then we need to redefine what learning is. So learning isn't the ability to repeat a movement pattern in an artificial context, um, well, it, it is, if that's all you want to do. All right, so it is learning in say closed skill sports where actually repeating movement patterns is what you're aiming to do, but it's not learning in a dynamic variable environment like like basketball is, where there's lots of other aspects going on. Learning in basketball is the ability to um, adapt to a range of ever changing variables and begin to make choices about movement patterns in relation to those ever-changing variables so to simplify what i mean by that is you've got to make decisions like do i run do i pass you know do i run there in order to pass there if i'm if that player is running there am i going to pass there now traditionally in basketball a lot of that would we would try and prescribe so we would try and say right what we're going to do is we're going to run a choreographed Play and if it all works perfectly, right? Will it'll come off? And don't get me wrong, I've done those and I've done those as a player, and they're great when they come off. The problem is, they really don't come off as often as you'd like to, as you'd like to think. So, what and why don't they come off? Because those pesky opponents do the opposite of what we expected them to do. And damn it, if it was only if they'd only follow like robots what we want them to do, it'd be great, wouldn't it? it would actually be boring wouldn't it so um, in many ways what we're trying to do is we're trying to get individuals to make decisions based on what they see in front of them now the only way you can do that is to give them things in front of them so how do we then come back to your question how do we define that they're learning well if we can say well actually what is it in the game what are the elements of the game that we're looking or hoping for the individuals to get a, an understanding of. So in basketball, in general, right, it's, um, you know, how, how do we get the ball, one element might be, for example, how can we get the ball as close to the basket as possible to make the action of scoring uh, to have the highest chance of success. Proximity equals higher chance of success, I assume, albeit watching watching guys raining down threes these days, you often wonder whether that is true. But anyway, that's one way of scoring. Get the ball close to the basket, right? So that's one principle. Okay. So if we were to design a task for a group where we were to say, oh, we're going to play 3v3 in a sort of particular area of the court and we're going to, you know, and we're going to say, right, you have to score. In a particular moment of time, you have to try and score as many baskets as you can from within, you know, a certain proximity. And you're going to get extra points every time you do. Yeah, you can rein in field goals and this, that, and the other, but less points. You get more points for getting the ball close to the proximity. And then you say to the players, go. So the task you've defined, so w- to define learning isn't, can I move the ball around? Can I pass the ball around? Can I follow instructions? Can we repeat the play over and over again? The task is. How do we work together as a group to get the ball as close to the basket as we possibly can, because we get more points for doing that? That's, we call that an, uh, in, in the in the world of, um, in my world anyway, we, we call that an affordance. It's basically an opportunity for action. And what we've done is by putting extra points on that. So we reversed it. We say get three points or four points or five points for getting a close proximity uh, goal um, or basket you, by doing that, you've, Put a lot of attraction to that right so the players are putting their emphasis and their attention there de- we've de-emphasized you know taking a field goal or uh, you know or, or a, or a three-pointer or something along those lines we de emphasized that we've placed more emphasis there so they're going to explore what we've done is we've created it with like basically like shone a light on that search space within the learning space that we've created. And they can explore within that. And you can bring them together, they can talk about it, they can like de- predefine their ideas a little bit to a certain extent or create shared and shared understanding. You can do it on the fly. You can start to get them to have different communication things, but you give them a bit of time and exploration and just see what they come up with. Then, when you come to game day, you then see if they can do it there that's when you know you're getting transfer and learning because if you're seeing these kinds of things emerge on game day then you're beginning to say well now we're starting to see the things that we've been working on Um, and that's how we can define where the learning is taking place so this is interestingly though this is one of the reasons though i think it's easy to get seduced back into the kind of drill type activities because it feels very rewarding when you see at the the movement capability that you've taught, be um, replicated by that player in that moment. What we often then forget or get frustrated by is why that doesn't then materialise when it comes to game day. Well, it's not a shock, is it? It's different, but so, but it's immediate, right? So it's quite gratifying. <laughs> Whereas the all the way you don't necessarily see it in the training session. Sometimes it's quite frustrating and. It might take a couple of sessions for these things to start to emerge and begin to start to connect together. And you might have to be, you know, kind of relentless about staying in the space for a bit, because it's going to take a while to explore these things. But you then begin to see it on game day. And it's like, now we know where we're getting somewhere. And the athletes do too. And they come back to you and they say to you, do you see what we did? Do you see what we did? It's such a different experience as a coach.
0: Such a different experience. And... uh... Let's make coaches feel a little bit better. This doesn't have to happen tomorrow. This is a process. If you're going through this right now, it's a process, isn't it? For you and I, even though like 25 years ago when I did my master's, I learned about games approach, games for understanding, game sense, whatever you want to call it. So I was aligned somewhat with playing basketball to learn how to play basketball from a very young age. So I've done this a while, but I've got much more confidence and comfort with this as I've gone all into it with the research. This is a process for a coach to get to this point. Say they're a traditional drill based coach coach, and they want to make changes. Can you talk a little bit about that process?
1: Yeah, I've got a lot of sympathy for people to people who do that because I've been through that myself. it's one of the reasons I've set up the podcast and stuff. Um, and it's not easy. I mean, I had to actually go through a process of you know, kind of couple of relegations whilst I was moving through my kind of my learning journey with this because, you know i was trying to do it live with an adult team playing you know kind of senior level stuff and i don't advise doing that i advise like you know kind of just like experimenting a little bit and building you know i went i'm a bit like that i'm really bad like you know i'm like right i'm just jumping straight in the deep end oh christ i can't swim uh, you know i'm a bit like that but um that's kind of how i learned to swim as a child but funnily enough um and maybe that's deep in my psyche i don't know but i um I I did, yeah, so I did go through that process, so I understand all of that and and you're totally right. This isn't, you're not expecting people to just go, right, this is it. The one thing I'd find, I did find though, that was quite interesting was I'd become really disillusioned with coaching because I, I should have, I was just like running out of answers. And I'd had some success with a pretty prescriptive approach because at that time, you know, actually in my sport, in field hockey, coaching was relatively uh it's still you know relatively in in its infancy there weren't many coaches about so therefore if a team had a coach and therefore had a bit more organization and structure generally speaking they would be a bit more successful but then obviously as things started to sort of build up that became increasingly um it became increasingly less effective and i didn't have any answers but what i also had was a lot of conflict i found myself constantly in conflict on in conflict with athletes and i couldn't quite put my finger on why and I realized was because a lot of what I was doing, you know, I was almost like stripping away the joy, you know, because I was like forcing these individuals to sort of, ask, you know, look, look, all you've got to do is double down on my structure and my plan and be more obedient and we'll be fine. And what they were saying is, coach, it's not working. And I'm going, it's because you're not not obedient enough. Be more obedient. And then it just kept going. So if, anybody, if 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 anybody's out there who finds that they've, had any it took me a long time by the way to come to terms with why I felt like that um so I if anybody does have that sort of sense of you know I feel like I'm having to act in ways that don't really map onto my values or aren't really aligned to my own experiences of of sport or it's not what I really wanted to be like and I don't particularly look in the mirror I don't particularly like myself or you're sensing this conflict then I would very much encourage people to sort of begin to explore this alternative because it doesn't have to be like that. And and one thing people probably also need to realize is that the, the, mo- the tra- I call it the traditional model. The reason I call it the traditional model is because it seems to be what is still in the majority of individuals, either because that's what they experienced. So therefore they're, they're modeling what they experience from their coaches. Or it's what was in their education because they happen, maybe have done a course and most coach education courses were still based on these fairly, um, I I guess, you know, kind of traditional models around skill acquisition. Um, and, or it's because, you know, that they've, it's just kind of what they've come to. And, you know, you look around the wider landscape of the sort of stuff and you see the professional realm and you'll see how most people act. In fact, increasingly, it's really interesting to watch the NBA and see less and less Coach is acting in that way, but it's still treated as being a bit abnormal and weird and woo-woo. So um, it's kind of interesting to see how the kind of the language of coaching and the language of sports is beginning to change, but it's very very slow. So I totally understand that some people might feel a bit uncomfortable and they might find a bit difficult. But for me, the experience that I had and the reason I sort of basically just literally threw off all of my old artifacts, if you like, you know, kind of uh, practitioner artifacts. Is because I just, this new, this sort of new approach just seemed so much more enjoyable for them and me. Um, It it seemed just to have so much more promise. It certainly mapped much more closely to my values. Um, I I was learning so much more every single day, every single session. And so I, I, you haven't really got much to lose personally, as far as I'm concerned. Um, well, you might lose some games. I lost some games, so that's fine. But um, I understand why people wouldn't necessarily want to go all in. But I also think that it can really add to your repertoire. So definitely at least begin to start to maybe start to phase out some of the traditional forms and bring in some of the other forms. That would be my my advice.
0: Coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballimmersion.com. Why do so many coaches coach like it was 20 years ago? Technology, research, innovation have all expanded our understanding of teaching, coaching, and learning. Change can be hard to accept, but with an open mind and willingness to learn, it is possible. This is what Basketball Immersion has done for so many coaches. Coaches at all levels of basketball from around the world have stimulated their coaching development using the Basketball Immersion membership community. Embrace the change that will impact your players and team beyond anything you can imagine. Join our Basketball Immersion community at basketballimmersion.com. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, because one of the big things for me was to, like traditionally when I was brought up, and I know scrimmages are still treated this way, or games in practice, they're treated as an opportunity for players to play uninterrupted without many coaching interventions. And the big shift for me was to just realize that because we're going to play basketball, whether it's five and five, four and four, some type of basketball, opposed all practice, that I was going to use those as constant moments for coaching interventions. Rather than rely on, say, a drill to teach something, I was coaching them constantly in the context of the game. And I find that coaches who just start coaching the scrimmages like they would a basketball game are the ones that are able to make the transition a little bit more comfortable. Is that aligned with your thoughts on kind of how to intervene and coach within the game context?
1: Um yes and no so we can get into the sort of details of this so just give me some just to clarify what you mean do you you, in general then are you saying
0: that five on five they make a mistake yeah and i can say hold recreate go back to the situation recreate the context of the mistake with the perception and the decisions present and then be able to follow feedback with action meaning we're going to follow that that situation and then play from there
1: yeah um yeah, that's definitely one one approach yeah um I, I try and limit them because otherwise we'd stop every five seconds sometimes particularly when i'm working with under 12s um so i you know i uh, you know just wait for the kind of key i guess the key teachable moments and only the ones related to the theme that's the other big learning i had like i i learned this i can't remember where i learned it from oh it was mark bernie one of my mentors like um what i'd find is we'd be working on a theme and then like i'd sort of forget about the theme and just start stopping and like correcting something else that was completely unrelated so i'm waiting for the teachable moments in relation to the relation to the theme and i do like um something that um uh russell earnshaw from the magic academy does he's a rugby coach uh he does a lot of um self-directed versions of that so actually getting the kids at some stage that so that you basically give them like you give them a pause you give them a and they can actually, they can do that, a pause and a rewind. So they can actually say, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. They might notice they made their own mistake. Stop, stop. They rewind it themselves and go, right, see that there? that there? Do that there? So I've started to do more of that as we become more self-directed and more athlete-centered as they get a bit older and they're more capable of that. Um, and then the other thing I do a lot more of now is I kind of create the area of focus ahead of the. Let's say whether they're going to play for, say, five minutes or something. So I might pose the question, which is, what are your defensive guys doing in order to stop you to get into the rim? Now, normally, I might have given those defensive guys some task that the attacking guys or the offensive guys don't know about. So what I'm trying to get them to do is to work out what the, you know, work out what's the information that we can glean in order to get to that point in order to get to do what we need to achieve. Um, and then afterwards, I'll get them to reflect back on in that five minutes what was it you noticed about that? So it's a similar way of doing it, but I don't necessarily have to intervene in the moment because I might do, but not always because I'm just, I know we're going to stop in five minutes and I've given them something to place their focus of attention on. So yeah, so there's a, a, an array of different approaches that I would take, but yeah,
0: you're right. And at the forefront of what you're talking about is ecological dynamics. So maybe now let's talk about that where. Uh, you know, this type of process exists because why?
1: Because what we are trying to do, wherever possible, uh, is to shape the environment. This is where the ecological bit comes in. So if you think about um, where does ecological dynamics come from, and it's becoming a bit of a a bit concerned about the way the phrase is becoming almost a bit um, perverted by some people, if you like, and almost being kind of, Giving it like you know, oh, you eco deep. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway, ecological dynamics is basically the idea of this ecological psychology, which is this idea that humans, their behaviours, are a response to environment, and uh, and we are adapting to environment. So you think about this. This is how humans have developed any capabilities over life, so how any organism develops any capabilities over their lifespan. So if you think about young people, you know, children learning to walk, you know, n- nobody necessarily goes. Right, kids. We're going to do your walking drills. You know, when they're like, you know, eight months old, they just get up and start tottering around, and they sort of learn through falling and balance, and maybe we give them a little bit of help, or and this, that, and the other. But they develop the ability to walk from quite an early age. And actually, there's some really fascinating research about how kids have have really quite very, I think, very young children have very interesting perceptual capabilities that we never knew that they had. So, you know, if they if they know that there is a something not in front of them they can sort of perceive that a little bit and they can they know a little bit more and they're making adjustments all the time but we do this all the time so if if we're walking you know through any kind of environment whether it's a, a natural environment or a urban environment we're adjusting our movement patterns according to how the terrain shifts or or because other people are getting in the way and we've got to dodge around them or cars or anything it is you know we're constantly adapting our movement patterns all the time on the fly. And that's principally what ecological uh, psychology and ecological dynamics sort of exist to do.
0: So, but, but we're adjusting without a coach? How do we do that? How do we avoid cars without a coach telling us? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, now, it, initially, though,
1: we we are obviously taught in a safety context a little bit about that's a car and it'll kill you. And we have to raise young people's awareness of the fact that there is something there that is going to kill you if you aren't careful about it. So of course we would do that in that context as well. Um, but what we, we, we operate in a world that is less deadly. So we can give more opportunity for freedom for young people. And therefore what we can say to them is so we can design an environment that creates an adaptation. Or we design an environment with, it, with, a, with, a, a, with information in it that defines how somebody might want to move in order to get to a certain point or to achieve a certain task goal. And in so doing, but, but we're not defining it as in saying you must do this and putting it in a box. We're saying there's a, a range of ways you could solve the problem depending on how you perceive that environment. So that so yeah so ecological dynamics works through rather than manipulating the individual as such by saying you must do this you must do that what we tend to do is to try and manipulate the environment to then see how the individual adapts to that environment
0: so this makes a lot of coaches uncomfortable because their perception of this is that we're leaving it up to the player to always self-determine my fate as a coach and our team's fate so how do we counter that
1: um well we call it it's not entirely self-directed, because um, we are what we're doing is we're using constraints or task dynamics or particular types of exercises or um, you know, space um, or what our opponents do to define in some way the various different solution options that might be available and you can even be as dis- defined as to say there's really just one solution option for you um you can go there so it's not beyond you know the kind of realms of possibilities but what you're doing is you're usually in this context you're directing attention rather than defining the movement that's the difference and it's because the the mo- sort of the the movement defining approach is based on the idea that we need to put information into somebody's brain which they will turn into into movement that's the traditional model of skill acquisition you get information in the form of instruction which you turn into a movement solution the ecological dynamicist would say i'm going to do something in the environment that invites you to act in a certain way so that you can experience it so one of the techniques you would use for example is this model called differential learning um rob gray perception action podcast talks actually got a podcast out today on this subject in baseball where you actually learn the wrong way so you're given a task of for example like hit the back of the rim hit the front of the rim like deliberately miss Because if you can deliberately miss, you can deliberately hit. So this is the notion of a construct called differential learning, or you do an extreme form of a particular action in order to then redefine down to something that's in the middle. So if you learn this extreme form, this extreme form, something in the middle becomes something that's probably more like what you were trying to achieve. But the act of there's a lot of research to show that the act of learning the extreme forms really helps you to dial in your movement and your proprioceptive capabilities to be able to do these particular actions. It
0: makes you more adaptable, doesn't it, too? 100%.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Alex Sarama, a good friend of ours, works with Basketball Immersion. I mean, he has so many examples of this in terms of differential learning around shooting. And a simple example for coaches is to to not work on shooting with perfect feet. And we obsess over perfect feet all the time, but the reality is there's there's not one technique and there's very rarely perfect feet. So can a player adapt to that? And still make shots
1: yeah and like when you watch great shooters they they hardly ever in fact you see this quite a lot there must be some research on this actually and you'll know better than i will but like you know when they're often you see shooters when they've got literally all the time in the world they miss But when they've got like a hand in their face, they make it. And I think it's partly because they've like, you know, over the years spent so much time with people with their hands in their faces, desperately trying to, and it sort of focuses the mind a little bit more, or it's more like the picture they always, that they often get. But what, um, what I'm trying to say is that you see great shooters adapting to defend, you know, so they can, they can make the jump back. They can make the shot off one leg with one hand, you know, so. The great players are super adaptable animals. You know, whatever a defender does, they've kind of got a solution for it. And, um, and that's really what we're trying to develop in young players, their ability to have solutions, you know, a a range of different solutions. And more often than not, what they're asking to do is they're coming up with solutions that are entirely unique to that moment because they've never come up against that person before in that exact situation before, they're never likely to come up against that person before in in exactly the same situation again. Therefore, every solution they come up with is novel in some way. And yet what we're saying is, no, we want you to learn this really predefined movement that's really sterile. And we think that's then going to become, I mean, I, I struggle to get the logic of that personally, but it's amazing how resilient that idea has been over the years.
0: So I'll give you another example I'd love to hear your thoughts on from a basketball perspective. When my daughter was eight, the natural thought process from a traditional coach would be, I need to teach her proper layup technique. Mm -hmm. And I intentionally have avoided ever teaching her proper layup technique, because as soon as I teach her proper layup technique, she is somewhat restricted to that technique rather than, again, being afforded the opportunity to be creative and find a solution. Now, as an 11-year-old, She can definitely, if you told her, and she's gone to different camps or different situations where someone said, do a proper layup, she can do it without ever being taught. it. But now, more often than not, she has more solutions than someone because she's never been restricted. Is that a mindset that we should be approaching coaching from a little bit more?
1: Yeah, because the the real danger is, is that you constrain an individual's movement repertoire by telling them the right way so of course why would they deviate from that you know because they would fear wouldn't they that if they were to deviate from that and they would miss regardless of whether that was what the situation demanded of them that they haven't followed the instruction and and in reality we don't necessarily want someone to follow the instruction what we want them to do is to understand that there's 125 more than that probably there's a, almost an infinite oh, wow. number of ways of getting the ball in the basket depending on what's happening around you and in front of you.
0: And And it comes back to this mindset, story of the decision is ultimately more important than the skill in some way, which is the decision to shoot the open layup versus the contested layup or the open layup in space versus not. And that applies to most sports, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And of course, the difference you see between, I I think often decision making in sport has been seen as this separate thing that you have to almost train on its own. Right. So you train the technique and then you train the decision-making element and you try and put the two things together. Within a, within a sort of ecological or constraints-led approach, you're developing the sort of, you're almost developing the decision and then the movement solution is defined by the decision. So it's working backwards. And of course, you're not you're never going to be, you're never separating the two. This is what they call perception and action, they call it perception-action coupling. What you perceive defines your decision or your action which then defines how you move. And actually, it happens so fast that it's not even something that is necessarily kind of a brain processing thing. It's just, there's a situation, I've got to resolve a problem with a movement solution, and whoa, look what I just did there. And I bet you, half the time, people go, they almost don't even know how they did
0: it. For basketball coaches, a lot of this is trying to flip their belief in what a fundamental is. A fundamental is a jump stop and a pivot and a layup done this way and this technique. And- and, and to flip their mindset and kind of focus them more on principles of play, you know, finding space, finding advantage, different things like that. And then the technique that applies is really kind of not the most important part, right? The decision is. So for you, how do we help coaches explore more this concept of not overburdening their athletes with technical instruction? Because traditionally, again, that eight-year-old in basketball would be taught technique before anything else.
1: Um. So it's really interesting. Um, by the way, we shouldn't just, um, we shouldn't, this is something that's uh, the world of sport over. So it's not just, it's not just define It's not just in basketball. We have this
0: sort of sort of predominance Agreed. of for technique led yeah. coaching. Yeah. Um, anyone that um, listens to your podcast, by the way, knows that <laughs> you, you cover so many sports in so many areas and it's wonderful
1: but given that your um obviously your 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 audience is predominantly basketball i wanted to give everybody some comfort that you know it's not just basketball where this is the problem and it's not and i'm not going to blame anybody either it's just there's a there's a kind of dominant narrative around human development that actually exists in most schooling and even in most industrial training that is actually a product almost of the industrial revolution it's been we're, we're still even in the educational realm we're still trying to kind of almost break free of those shackles, but they're very, very strong because they've become so associated with the means of production. It's an entirely different podcast again, get get, get, get all (laughs) sociological. Let's get back to the basketball. Um, yeah, the point you make is a really good one, which is, um, this notion of what's a fundamental. So we've associated fundamentals with movement, movement forms. There are particular movement forms that you must be taught in order to be able to play this game. That is actually fundamental. I mean, it's fundamental to my education as a coach. These are the techniques you must teach. Kids can't play this game if they haven't got these techniques. Now, to a certain extent, well, firstly, it's not true, by the way, they can play. I mean, and I'm talking about like, you know, so they, even if they can't dribble, they can play. Why? Because they can pass. Right? So they can still play the game in their form. It might not look like the game we know, but this is a game that they know. And maybe it'd be better for us to define the game that they know based on their action capabilities, but that's another conversation for another day. But the point being is that the fundamentals are associated with moving from, I, they are not the fundamentals, the fundamentals are what what you need to do to be able to win a game of basketball, which is get the ball in their basket, stop them getting it in ours. Like basically that's it, right? And then there's lots of elements within that. So there's like various different layers that you can go down. But the starting point is how do we get it in there? How do they stop it getting in there? And, and then within that, like, what do we need to do to get it towards there? Well, there's a range of ways we do that how do we stop them from getting it close to there? Uh, well, there's a range of ways we do that. And then we can start to unpick all those. Now, they're the fundamentals of the game, right? That's how, you know, but we almost have thought, well, okay, let's let's reduce it all down to the movement bits and then reassemble it into the game. Um, and that's one way of looking at it, right? And if that's what you're kind of bought into and you've looked at all of the research and you decided that's the model for you, have at it. The problem is, most people have never known anything else. So it's worth exploring the alternative. So let's start from the fundamentals being the ways in which we can win the game. Now let's start from there and actually give young people as many experiences of that as we can. So I've been doing this with a group of kids in field hockey since they were like, "Hey, this, like, this is my sort of experimental cohort. Um, including my own child. So, you know, I wasn't entirely unethical in doing all of this, but what happened was because they weren't given the techniques, sure. When we played some games against other clubs, we, you know, we probably have a hard time because there'll be other kids who've got some slightly different capabilities and it gave them an advantage. So what did they do? They had to adapt. And so they learned that actually we can't, um, we can't dribble the ball to go round loads of other players because we haven't got that capability. So what do we do? We pass it. Now, actually, often young men, particularly particularly young, you know, if you teach them a technique, they will want to do it all the time. And they'll dribble, 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 dribble. And you'll shout at them, pass the ball. Well, no, I never did that. So they just passed. It didn't always work. It didn't always work, out, but you could see the intention, you know, and I used to say to my assistant coach, I say, you, you're seeing that too, right? They are actually trying to pass the ball around. And move it towards. You go, no, no, they are. You can see they're doing it. And sometimes it would work out, and you think, "Oh, this is really cool." And then what happened was, as we started to do more and more of this, they started to develop the uh, a ball movement capabilities as well. So they could move the ball with each other, pass the ball. They start to learn to trap the ball. They start to learn to, you know, control the ball and move the ball to other spaces. And they started to use space a little bit better. And they were they were almost getting game appreciation and game sense. Was sort of like, you know, just bake. Baked in, it was kind of like just part of the thing. And then they started to develop the movement capabilities that went with it. And then all of a sudden, if you got that coupled with the game appreciation, oh, now they can't, no one can beat us anymore. And it's like, and almost like these same clubs are like, where, whoa, 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 where'd you come from?
0: (laughs) That's got to be a wonderful feeling.
1: Well, it is. And I try not to be too smug about it, but it is fascinating. But what I do love about it, if I'm totally honest with you, Chris, is that. It's actually, it's, it's kind of them, right? They, some of them have got like these like signature moves that they've just developed and they're superpowers. I would never have taught them those. And now they might have developed them themselves anyway. But what I would have potentially sacrificed is the game appreciation because they would have gone through formative years of 8, 9, 10, 11. But, you know, where it was just about them and the ball as opposed to the game. So the fundamentals, and I do get people saying to me, these kids can make real, they make really good decisions. And like that for me is the, I know that that's the bit that we've got is that they've got this kind of unique capability to read the game and make movements according to the game, as opposed to what a lot of kids do, which is they do their move, right? Regardless of whether it's the right time to do the move, they just do their move. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. These kids don't do that. They go, oh, yeah, no, no, you're doing that. Yeah, no, we're going over there. It's really fascinating.
0: So, so I love that. It, that gives us an example of you. we know it works because you've tried it. I've tried it. We know it works. But the other part that I love about that is the, the fun and engagement part for your players, your athletes, that they, they, they enjoy more often than not, they enjoy practice. I mean, a certain amount of practice is always not enjoyable, I guess. But they enjoy practice. And then what they most enjoy is how practice helps them in games, doesn't it?
1: Uh indeed, and um because a lot of their practice was like a game, it didn't seem really overwhelming when they went in the game. They were kind of kind of used to it, albeit they weren't fully tooled up for it, so they really enjoyed it um, now, there were times when they didn't you know the results didn't go our way, and we were on the end of a few hidings uh that maybe they didn't quite enjoy as much, but that's where my element was about. Let's place our focus elsewhere. We're not really only interested in the result. What we're interested in is the things that we're working on that we're going to explore. So for example, we played a lot of games where it was about, you know, how do we connect together and make three or four or five passes? That's what they were working towards. So we started to put that more focus and more emphasis there. How do we, you know, make like close your defense down and make tackles? Cause like anybody can do that. You know, you don't have to be particularly technically capable to get close to somebody and be dogged and stop, you know, give them little time on the ball and stop them getting close to your goal. Like any, You'd be dedicated to that, right? So you can focus on those sorts of things. Anyone can do that. It's just about having a mindset to do it. Um, yeah. So that was kind of, you had to sometimes just place your emphasis elsewhere.
0: And basketball coaches, uh, we, we love systems of play, you know, y- you know, that. And then certainly this applies to, you know, football, soccer, different sports like that as well. So it's not unique to us. But how do how does ecological dynamics or this non-drill approach, how does this account for teaching systems of play?
1: Um, well, systems of play are defined by, again, um, the principles and the kind of goals that you have and the ways in which you as a group want to coordinate. So it's defined in many ways by the, uh, the problems that you're presented with by your opponents, whether you're in possession or out of possession. Um, and you can develop those by um, spending time together, creating a shared understanding of the kinds of things that our opposition are likely to do in a given set of circumstances. Um, and by recognizing those together and communicating those to each other, you know because it's not not everybody perceives the game in the same way at the same time, but if an individual has a perception and can communicate that to somebody else, that's really powerful like if they're shouting to each other they're doing this they're doing this they're doing this i was speaking to alex on the show a while back and he was talking about how there's he got, he's got particular code words that he uses um that defines what someone's doing and triggers uh and that then leads he'll, to that action yeah triggers exactly yeah that, that's right um so similar constr- concept actually but it's more about a, a kind of a shared vocabulary that can be communicated through a singular word rather than lots and lots of you know because you haven't always got time to you know spell it out for everyone so you might you know so for example i use a lot of animal analogies in my coaching you know so i might say you know they might say armadillo 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 right which is a, basically a way of saying we need to compress together closely because we're we're numbers down and they're counter-attacking and we need to be as close as we possibly can, curling up in a ball like an armadillo to protect our zone, to force them into a wider area in order to then gain numerical advantage, to delay the play, if you like, and do that sort of stuff. So those kinds of, but that's about recognizing a moment in time. Wow, we're numbers down, right? What have we got to do? Call to my teammates to get close to me so that the direct line to goal is more difficult to get to, which means we then have to go somewhere else. So but we do that by, uh we would we would play a, a scenario where for example you're likely to be counterattacked against a lot and then we design that game or that environment the counterattack would happen and then after a period of time i would say to the players what are you noticing about when the counterattack happens and they'll say well you know they're getting through and we say okay so what is it we can do together they do that and they go, well, we, we've got to get close or whatever it is, right? Okay, great. Okay. What can we call that to make it easy? Well, what, what, what call can we give that? They came up with armadillo or sometimes I would give them armadillo. What about like an armadillo, right? Or, you know, like a, a tortoise or something, I don't know. Um, so the point we're trying to make is, is that we get, we are trying to get the players to create this shared sense of moments in the game and how they might coordinate they, you know, create a language that coordinate. Now, that doesn't ever prescribe what happens. It just creates. Uh, what's the word? It creates a kind of a shared percept- perception. So they're all now looking for the same thing. So, firstly, their movements will be more coordinated. The second thing is they're now looking for the same thing. So, if on attack, for example, if if they say, for example, um, uh, uh, well. They say shark what it means is feeding frenzy and what that means is that for example the the defense have massed like a school of fish right we've lost the advantage and the defense have massed like a school of fish around their goal area to try and avoid it right there's no point us just trying to plow into that because they'll just sort of stop us getting any penetration so the way to do that is like a like a like a shark you're circling the school of fish waiting for the moment of weakness and then you're going to attack that so you know it's a little bit like in very similar to basketball actually where you'd move the ball around waiting for the moment of penetration and then you'd look to exploit it when you see it and you sh- you get a shared visual connection with each other and you can understand when the moment is there similar idea so we're not predefining the movement what we're doing is we're creating a shared understanding of the conditions in the game that might require us to coordinate our activities together
0: yeah, you're cueing them to a collective consciousness of what's Love possible. It. And yeah. uh, I'll give you a basketball example just to go along with that because was g- great stuff there, is like shrink the floor, taking away space. Basketball is a game of opposites, opposite, uh, opposites, so bas- uh, offense wants to create space, defense wants to take it away. So shrink the floor is often a term. So we call that octopus, meaning nice. that if you're one pass away on defense, you can be an octopus and really take away space and be more aggressive because it's a less effective ball handler as well in that sense. So there's, there's different things that can cue collective consciousness, which I just love. Stuart, we could keep going on so much of this stuff. I already think we've given coaches so much to think about to stimulate their thinking. Um, I, I can't encourage them enough to listen to your podcast, uh, The Talent Equation. Uh, just, just great stuff from so many different guests from so many different places. And I, I'm not sure what your main takeaways from the podcast is, but one of my main takeaways, which I think coaches always value, is phrasing. Just so much great phrasing or ways to explain things have come out of that podcast as you have strove, I guess, strive to make it practical for us as coaches. So thank you for that. Anything else stand out from the podcast in terms of encouraging coaches to dive into it?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a lot of a lot of stuff um, on on the show that you know over the over the years, you know, and it's not just dead. I mean, whilst I suppose that. The main thrust of the kind of podcast has been around this idea of exploring ecological dynamics and find, you know, it's amazing how many people you find in all walks of life who are exploring. You know, I call it the Ecological Explorers Club a little bit, right? Which is all these different people who are involved in different ways, exploring in different ways, in different concepts. You know, I've got Taekwondo people reaching out and, you know, golf coaches. And, you know, because like if you think about golf, it's like, People think of that as being a bit closed skill. What ecological dynamics got to do with that? Well, actually an awful lot, funnily enough. Um, so I guess it's just, you know, uh, there's one thing I've learned through the process of this is there is always so much to be taken from other sports, you know, so like I had Alex on the show, uh, as you said before. And you know, the stuff you would do you guys do in basketball, like, yeah, man, I've got to get some of this in. And like I have started to apply it, right? And it's working brilliantly. Um, and I think it's really easy, isn't it, to sometimes just get kind of trapped in your own sport and only interested in your own sport. But I've definitely learned loads from so much people. That one of the next shows that's coming out actually is a guy, a coach who does Chris Kilmurray, who does downhill mountain biking. Like again, you know, I like, oh my God. I mean, like, how do you even go about helping somebody with that? Because you can't be with them. You can't be next to them. You just know, there's no pause when you're halfway down the mountain at 80 kilometers an hour and beyond, you know, so like, what do you do there? Right. And it's just fascinating. Some of the stuff that the people are exploring. So, um, I guess that's it really is that kind of the idea of almost generalizing through a, lo- a range of different sports and it can bring you different insights.
0: I love it. I can't wait to listen to that one and all the other ones and coaches go check it out and, uh, Stuart, thanks for sharing with us.
1: Uh, absolutely delighted. And by the way, I, I have always loved the name Basketball Immersion. I've talked a lot about language learning. I, I grew up in West Africa and I became absolutely bilingual in French. it was a French colony. And then as I got older and I moved away, I kind of lost a lot of my French. But if I go to France now, words come out of me that I don't even know I know right? And it's because I was immersed in it. So I love the concept of immersion. It's very
0: aligned to the ecological principle. So keep up the good work, Chris. Well, thank you for that. And uh, just to add to that, I grew up in Canada where French immersion was the thing. And that's what the origin of the name came from, where I learned French by being immersed in it. Yeah. And it's absolutely a brilliant thing. So thank you for connecting that too. Uh, Just wonderful. Coach, I can't wait to get you back to the basketball podcast, but I wanted to take a brief moment to tell you about ImmersionVideos.com. Have you checked out ImmersionVideos.com? Watch a an practice and see how he has Alabama ranked in the top five nationally. Or get access to our new release featuring nine all-access practices from Alex Rama, Or other products from Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Dave Smart, Scott Morrison, Aaron Fern, Mark Cassio, Francisco Nanny, and more. ImmersionVideos.com was created to provide value to coaches like you, we are looking to stimulate their professional development by offering unique all-access tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. Go to immersionvideos.com and check it out today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank